you're listening to American Songcatcher, tracing the roots of American music from its cultured past to today's artists playing it forward. I'm folk songwriter Nicholas Edward Williams. I'm so pleased to have my first guest on the podcast, the incredibly gifted multi-instrumentalist, teacher, musicologist, and songster, Mr. Andy Cohen. Once a lead boy soaking in the shadow of Reverend Gary Davis, Andy's been playing music for 72 years. He's a virtuoso fingerstyle guitarist and pianist who has been described as a walking, talking, folk, blues, roots, music encyclopedia. He has devoted his entire life to studying, performing, promoting, and preserving traditional blues and folk music. Country Blues Magazine says, One thing is for sure, the boy can play. There are a few people around today who had a chance to pick it all up from the old generations, get this good at it, and continue to cherish and preserve the old traditions. Before we started, I had a load of questions for Andy, but as you'll hear, he holds the conversation without them. I took a backseat for this history lesson, so there's not many words from me. You may remember Andy from a mention in episode 2 of American Songcatcher, as he was the mentor of my mentor, Joan Crane. Andy plays a few tunes, tells how his librarian set him on a course, about his vast knowledge of many lesser-known blues artists, and shares stories about the Reverend Gary Davis that I was unaware of. Fair warning, the audio from our Zoom chat is not great quality. I apologize. I'm still new at this. And a side note, episode four will be up soon. Okay, here we go. I can tell a couple of stories. I mean, if you want to know how I got into this. Yeah, definitely. I was kind of born into it. My dad wasn't a musician, but he loved music and used to sing me to sleep. Uh, he sang folk songs, you know, like Burl Ives kind of folk songs, and he was a labor lawyer. So I grew up with all kinds of union guys in my backyard and people singing union songs and the peace movement and um, I grew up in this left-wing environment. Uh, I'm still in it. My daughter <laughs> is still in it. She's a, she's a First Amendment lawyer. Wow. Traditional in our family. <laughs> um, I'm going to say on nobody's authority but my own, our way of looking at things sees all forms of working-class music as an endocast of the culture at large. You follow that? Yeah. So I always had it in mind first, get the old guys work, teach the young ones how to play. Right. And I kind of made it my business after learning about Big Bill Brunzi and Reverend Gary Davis and people like that seeing actual street singers, blind street singers on the streets of Boston, Cambridge, when I was a kid in Harvard Square. Is that where you grew up in that area? Yeah, I, I grew up in a place called Sharon, Massachusetts. My librarian subscribed, to my high school librarian, Miss Clark, subscribed to Folkways Records. She would get the catalog, and when it was record ordering time, she would order this one and that one. 
One time I was on the honor roll. I think I only made the honor roll one time, but for a short period, I didn't have to sit in study hall. If you were on the honor roll, you could go listen to records in the library. Hmm. So I did. And that's where I heard Mike Seeger and Big Bill Grunzi and Hermes Nye and a whole lot of people you never heard of. One day, Miss Clark hands me this record. Big Bill Brunsey, Sonny Terry, Brownie McGee. I was 15. It changed my life. Let me, this is what I got off of that record. You've heard this before because you probably learned this from Joni. I recognize that. I was 15 years old. I had been playing piano for 12 years, and I was playing ragtime boogie-woogie piano. Mm -hmm. I didn't like rock and roll. I thought it was too simplistic. <laughs> I thought it didn't mean anything. It didn't have any import. Was piano yeah. your first instrument? Piano was my first instrument, yeah. Um, I was playing piano when I was like three, like this. <laughs> So then how did your father get into that kind of music? Did he just grow up with it or was he? Yeah, he grew up with it. He grew up in the jazz age. He liked popular music of his day. What can I say? When he went to a bar, he would hang out by the piano bar and feed the piano player scotch, <laughs> you know, and ask him for different songs, you know. Uh, I grew up with the Firehouse 5 Plus 2 as the background music to my life. Firehouse, you know who they are? No, never heard of them. The, the Disney artists who drew Mickey Mouse and Donald Duck and Fantasia also played in a Dixieland band. And that's what they did for lunch. They played in their band. Uh, they were crazy. But <laughs> because I had that background in this complex music, so I grew up with Broadway shows, classical music, which I hated, I still hate. Uh, it's boring, you know, Brahms is boring. There's no beat. <laughs> <laughs> and it's too grandiose. Reverend Davis and Big Bill 
and Booker White and all these guys, and Mississippi John Hurt, Elizabeth Cotton, Anna Baker, they made complete music on one instrument. And by complete, I mean that it had a repeating bass part that the melody or the riff rested on. And it was in rhythm and people could dance to it. And there was nothing missing in everything. And the totality of it, whatever that was, was sufficient. Hmm. When I saw Reverend Davis for the first time, I was 17 years old. My brother brought me to Brandeis, where the festival was, and in one concert, I saw the Jim Quest and Judd Band, the New Lost City Ramblers, Roscoe Holcomb, the Georgia Sea Island Singers, Reverend Gary Davis, and then Reverend Gary Davis with the Georgia Sea Island Singers. <laughs> now, that was a stroke of luck for me. Uh, and seeing Reverend Davis, I got there early so I could look at his hands while he played. I was just starting to play guitar. So I wanted to get a good view of it, how he actually manipulated the string. So anyway, all that blew my little mind. There was the Georgia Sea Island singers and Reverend Gary Davis showing a thousand Jewish kids all wearing yarmulkes how to have church <laughs> and how to do it right. And this was temporarily coincident with the height of the civil rights movement. So it was a moment in history that I got to be witness to and find a path out of. I looked at Reverend Davis and the Georgia Sea Island singers making those Jewish kids jumped up and down. And I said to myself, I have to learn how to do that. <laughs> That's incredible. And so, after seeing Reverend Gary Davis, you were starting to play guitar. When did you kind of start coming into your own as far as the guitar playing goes after that? I'm not sure if I actually have coming to my own. <laughs> I, don't, I don't consider that I've ever had an original thought. But I'm like the guy, uh, I'm enough of a musician. I've just been playing all my life, literally. I'm 74 years old in two weeks. I can't remember not understanding music. I understand music better than I understand English. And you ended up being mentored by the Reverend for a little while, right? Uh, only a little. I wouldn't ever claim that. What I did have, um, I was his lead boy briefly in Chicago and in Detroit. What's lead boy? A lead boy is a person who leads a blind person around. Mm, okay. Um, the lead boy has responsibilities. You have to make sure that the old guy is safe. You have to make sure that he gets to his gig on time. You have to make sure that you collect the money and you give it to him. Uh, Josh White was a lead boy for a whole bunch of mean, drunken, blind blues guys. So he respected Davis, but he was mistreated by the ones he led around. Mm. On the other hand, Simi Dooley, you know who Simi Dooley is? Mm -mm. Simi Dooley went to the same blind school as Reverend Gary Davis in Spartanburg. Yeah. Uh, when he graduated there, he picked up a young man named Pinkney Anderson. Mm -hmm. Pink Anderson. Who became, he, he formally adopted him. And he taught Pink how to play the guitar. And the two of them 
went all around. Uh, Pink told me that he and Simi would play in places as far away as Brevard, which is, you know where Brevard is? North Carolina or Florida? It's in North Carolina, yeah. You're in North Carolina, right? Yeah, I played in Brevard several times. Yeah, okay. Well, you probably played very close to the same place where Simi Dooley and Pink Anderson played in 1926. I have gradually been introduced to most world music at this point, but I had a very intense period when I was younger, your age, listening to the, the old guys say their piece finally. People who'd never been recorded in the pre-war days got to record after the war. Right. And their music was substantially unchanged. That whole period fascinates me. It's kind of like doing musical archaeology. Mm -hmm. uh, Davis was a compulsive teacher. That's, that's the other thing I always admired about him. Over and above everybody else, not only was his musical conception complete and structured, he understood, he had this uh, mechanism in his head over the years, worked out the picking and the fretting, very unorthodox in both cases. Mm -hmm. But years and years of going to church and going to revivals and hearing the music, he could read music in braille. Most people don't know that. He could read braille music and he could play the piano. So if you can access Davis's technique, and if you can access his picking arrays and his repertoire and his methods, you pretty much got everybody else in the blues and gospel catalog covered. Mm -hmm. There isn't anything that anybody else does that Davis couldn't do. You know, even the one chord stuff that you find in in, in northern Mississippi, the stuff that Kenny Brown and Arnold Burnside are so good at. Mm -hmm. Very intense music, but it just doesn't change chords very much. You know, Davis could do that too. Did you ever find that, because I, from diving and research about him, there was a paradox at some point where he, you know, he was playing blues music for a long time and then kind of stuck to spiritual music. When he was teaching, like, did he have a, some sort of hesitation about t teaching those styles or was he open to doing that? Well, he was legalistic about it. <laughs> and by that I mean, if singing blues was a sin, he would play the blues and talk them. And if, as Roy Bookminder has related many times, if Sister Davis came in the house, he would switch coats <laughs> real fast. That said, this is a quote from him, which I will have to interpret a little bit. Everything that people say is a sin isn't a sin. Uh, he liked a good cigar. Uh, he had an appreciation of horse flesh mm -hmm. that was went right along with the times. <laughs> uh, he would go places alone. You know, his manager, Manny Greenhill, would send him on a bus or a train and know that there was going to be some guy at the other end of the line with, you know, uh, some Jewish cowboy with a D28 in one hand and a bottle of bourbon in the other hand going to take care of him. Mm -hmm. Because he, it was just that way. Everybody wanted to play like him. Right. It was that way from the very beginning. Reverend Davis came to New York City 
from Durham in 1943, following his wife, who got a job being a maid in New Rochelle. And he played on the streets of Harlem. And one day, I got this story from Tiny Robinson. Tiny Robinson was Martha Ledbetter's niece. Mm -hmm. Martha Ledbetter is Hudy Ledbetter's wife. Mm -hmm. One day, Hudy Ledbetter brings this old guy home with a great big guitar oh, wow. and apparently picked him up on the street. Ledbetter would have been the only person in the city of New York who knew what he was looking at. Uh, that he was looking at a genius who could play like nobody else. Tiny Robinson became his manager. She said he would come down from his home in the Bronx, a little hovel between two condemned tenements. He would come down to Leadbelly's apartment in Harlem and teach the sons and daughters of the left-wingers that Leadbelly hung up. She said the white boys was lined up out the door. <laughs> in 1943, those are the ones we don't know about. Right. We only know about the ones he taught after Stefan Grossman came into the picture. Right. Because that really popularized it. Um, so there's intersectional history on a grand scale in this very small gem-like society that is collecting during the 30s. Right. Hugely influential on my life. And when I saw Davis, everything snapped together like it made the feedback. How did you get to New York City? Oh, I lived in Chicago when I first was his lead boy. Oh, okay. He came out to play at The Quiet Night. And Richard Harding, who owned The Quiet Night, asked me if I'd like to put him up. And I said, does a chicken have lips? No. <laughs> of course I want to put him up. He's my idol. Right. Um, a couple of years later, I moved to Detroit. And the people... Uh, down, who lived down the street from me were going to get married and they were going to have Reverend Davis marry them. So he came out and, and I interceded when I heard that. I told one of the a local club owner, why don't you hire him? And he said, what a good idea. So he had a two-week engagement uh, in Detroit and while he was there staying with Loring and Sue, sleeping on the Castro convertible, holding court with every guitar player in Detroit, one after another. I can name them all, because I was there. I was, right, I was there every day. People kept calling up from all over Michigan. So he ended up going to Interlock, and we went to Kalamazoo to the Gibson factory. He went to Lansing. He played several other gigs while he was in town marrying Laureen. So he was around for a month. That's how I got to, to meet him and to observe him, how he interacted, the kinds of things he said. The other advantage I had is that I know some significant portion of all of the people that he taught through the year. Everybody gets some of it. Nobody gets all of it. But I've gotten to witness I've gotten to see Mark Chover and Rick Ruskin and Lorraine James and Doc Watson, who also hung out and played with Reverend Davis, um, Paul Hofstetter, Jim Hockenhall. I don't know, I, at one point I wrote down a list of about 110 people that I knew of that had taken <laughs> lessons from them, and I know that's just barely scratching the surface. Yeah. I lived in Asheville, North Carolina, for some years. Now. 
Asheville is dominated. One of Asheville's main exports is old-time music and bluegrass. Yep. People go to Port Townsend, Washington to study with bluegrassers and old-time fiddle players from Asheville. But what I didn't understand is why there wasn't any blues in Asheville. Because Etta Baker was 60 miles away in Morgan. And Johnson City, which has its own blues in history, is like 80 miles north. And Brown and McGee and Leslie Riddle lived in Kingston, Tennessee. And Davis and Ted Bogan and Simi Dooley and a whole clutch of people from Greenville and Spartanburg lived just south of Asheville. Why wasn't there any blues in Asheville? There logically should have been. Mm -hmm. I went down in the bottom, the place that uh, Corner of Eagle and Biltmore, there was a little, you wouldn't call it a cafe exactly, it was just known as May's place, and May was the local representative for playing the numbers. And if you wanted to, if you were in that neighborhood, she also had beer, and that sort of thing. So I went down to the bottom and I asked a few people my sneaky folklorist trick. Excuse me, sir, do you remember that old guy that used to play blues around here? After a while, somebody said, yeah, that's old Walt Phelps. He's over in May's place playing the numbers and drinking a beer. So I knocked on May's place. I said, hello, are you Walt Phelps? I said, are you the guitar player? And I brought him a guitar. I, he showed me that he could play. He was a very poor individual. He was a laborer all his life. Mm -hmm. At one point, I asked him where we were, he was from. He said, Lawrence, South Carolina. I said, did you ever know a blind kid that could pick his patoot off? And he said, you mean Gary Davis. <laughs> Nobody could play like Gary Davis. Everybody around there could play, but nobody could play like Gary. Did I know Gary Davis? Yes, I knew him twice. How's that? I knew him down home, and then he proceeded to play me Candyman, exactly like Reverend Gary Davis played it, with the accent on the two. Yeah. said I knew him here too and that was news to me I said when did he come to Asheville he said after blind school hmm. he was in blind school when he was 16 or 17 uh, Davis told me he used to serenade around with Willie Walker and a bunch of his friends mm -hmm. Willie Walker was kind of a mentor for him well there's a quote of him saying that he was the finest guitar player he ever knew uh, I think that Davis probably learned his major technique from Walker, who was unfortunately very under-recorded. Yeah. But Davis could play both of those pieces, and he played pieces that Walker didn't record, mm -hmm. that he learned from Walker, Slow Drag, uh, Maple Leaf Rag, several others. Davis moved to Asheville. He was lived in Asheville from between about probably 1913 to 1926. I tried to connect him up with Jimmy Rogers, who came to Asheville in 1926. There was six months between them. Oh my gosh. Jimmy Rogers, who undoubtedly would have run into him. Yeah. You know, for a lot of reasons. Not just the guitar, but 
Jimmy Rogers worked for the Red Dot Taxi Company, which was on the third floor of a building overlooking Pack Square, which is where Reverend Davis used to play. Oh, wow. So he would have been looking out the window waiting for somebody to call up for a fare, watching Davis play, probably taking his guitar down there and playing with him. Right. But Davis left six months before that could occur. I can only imagine what would have ensued at that point. <laughs> so then how did, how did you come into contact? This must have been later in life when Elizabeth became popularized by the Seeker family, but how did you come into contact with her and Etta Baker and some of those? Uh, Etta Baker? Well, one of the first things we learned back in the 60s was Railroad Bill. And if you mm -hmm. ever seen the record, it's the orange record called Instrumental Music of the Southern Appalachians, and it has Etta Baker doing One Dime and, and uh, Railroad Bill. And so I knew her from that record, and then when I went to, when I was living in Asheville, I saw her. You know, she would come there occasionally. She went to different folk festivals. Mm -hmm. After Asheville, I moved up to Ohio. Uh, I moved up to Kent, Ohio, uh, and became involved with the Kent State Folk Festival which later morphed. Uh, it sort of cloned itself because one of the guys that ran the Kent State Folk Festival got a job at the Cuyahoga Valley National Recreation Area. Mostly I went to folk festivals and got to meet the old guys there. Mm How -hmm. so I managed to get the status to even walk up to them and shine their shoes, I don't know, but they, you know, they were all pretty nice. Yeah. I figured it was my moral onus, so I kind of became a sub-agent, a subcontractor for some Canadian festival. You know, when they wanted blues guys, they called me up. Hmm. So who can we get that'll be representative of this regional blues pattern? And, you know, so I'd find them something. We share lineage in some ways of um, my mentor, Joan, who was mentored by you. Uh, and Joan passed away earlier this year. Uh, and may she rest in peace. Well, I just played Shuffle Rag a few minutes ago. Yeah. I knew she was right for it when I taught her Shuffle Rag and she played it back to me note for note. Get out of here. <laughs> way, way. How old was she when you guys met? She was about my age. So, so we were both roughly 20, this was 1968. And that, let's see, 68, that's 52 years. Holy um, smokes. I was a temporary backup guitar player for Paul Jeremiah. Um, I was just accompanying him on one of these uh, Bitter End Coffee House concert tours. And Joni was there. She was already playing. She came up and talked to her. And I think she may have even had her guitar. Mm -hmm. I taught her shuffle rag. Did she teach you shuffle rag? She started with hey hey, and you know was just getting the foundation down because I I didn't start playing with a thumb pick until I met her, and she kind of convinced me one day, and that sort of changed my whole my whole technique, my whole outlook, and everything sort of changed. Um, but that's actually I have this packet that has all these this homework that she gave me on our last session, and um, there's still some things that I have yet to 
Next time I see you, I'll walk you through it. Please do. I, I remember hearing that on Bill Bill Bruins. He does folk songs. And uh, I mean, that was spot on, the, your rendition. If Big Bill Brunzi is one of my main influences, the other one would be Reverend David. I've made a specialty of learning his repertoire and getting up with everybody else who had even fleeting contact with him. My guess is that he taught over a thousand people. Holy smokes. One to one in the course of his life. He was a rare one. He had some fundamental understanding that us mere mortals don't. <laughs> and just like with us in his younger days, he would have been playing for the gymnastics of it. But as he grew older and his visions of life and death grew deeper, just as with me, it became more music and less gymnastics. Reverend Davis used to say, you have three hands. He'd hold up his left hand and say, this is your fretting hand. Hold up his thumb. This is your right hand, he said. This is the one that you play the boogie bass with. And separately from that, he'd hold up his index finger. He was a one-finger player. Yes. Most of the old guys, almost all of them, were one-finger players. Hold up his one finger, said, this is your right hand. This is the piano part. This is the lead part of the piano. The chords, the rhythm, the melody, the harmony, the percussive effects, and the outright blend of the music. Plus, he could sing and preach on top of it. I'll be all right.
this warms my heart. This kind of old style live today, is there anybody that you admire that's doing that today? I am thrilled to report <laughs> that there is a renaissance of young African-American people taking up the old African-American music. I could not be happier. Warren Willis and Kingfish mm -hmm. and, and Dom Flemons and Ben Hunter and Joe Siemens and Rhiannon Giddens and the Banjo Reclamation Project. Mm -hmm. I am so thrilled. This is the dream I have tried to work toward. Uh, for 50 years, there is no reason why the old repertoire should not be part of young people's lives. Mm -hmm. Blues and all the spring band music and everything else. Mm -hmm. There is a great big mixed bag of different kinds of songs from the oyster beds all the way to Texas, all the way through Texas and Oklahoma. Contiguous. Mac McCormick was absolutely correct when he said that there is blues in every county between Waco and Chesapeake Bay. It's all different. It's all different. There is so much. There is so much culture that has been untapped and neglected. And it has such great validity and such great strength. When I saw how Reverend Davis and the Georgia Sea Island singers were showing all these Jewish kids how to worship, I mean, really, if you can't be happy in church, where can you be happy? Mm -hmm. They was getting happy. Mm -hmm. Regardless of the details of the scripture, that happiness, is what it's all about. Big Bill Brunsey said, play it like you feel it. This presupposes that you feel something. Mm -hmm. That's the key to the treasure. And as we all know, the key to the treasure is the treasure. Yeah, I suppose it wouldn't do you any good if you're not feeling it. You would just be sort of robotic. If not, or if you rely so much on technique and less on feel, then you're missing the emotion. Well, that's why you practice. <laughs> you practice so that you don't have to think about the chops. The blind guys in general tended to be a cut above than the average player. When I teach, I describe in minutely detailed terms which finger you put where and how you do it. The old guys just said, you do it like this. <laughs> To get that lick, play me a note. They're not relying, for the most part, they're not relying on a musical vocabulary. That's inherent in their soul. They just bring their soul there and it does the work. I think music is all intentional sound that isn't language. Bright red line, boom. If it means something, it's language. Music is all, music is a code. The parts of the code can move around. They can be shifted to different sounds. It doesn't matter. But it's a code that does not freight meaning. 
Music is necessary for language. Language is not necessary for music. I think that in evolutionary terms, it had to have arisen first. I mean, it just makes sense to me. Ultimately, I want to find where the wiring is that connects the will to make music. You have a lot of reasons to do it. Any ritual in any culture is usually attended with music. Every human being can dance, every human being can sing. If you watch an orangutan or a chimpanzee swinging through the trees, you can see that they're, that they're swinging in rhythm the way we walk in rhythm. Mm -hmm. But chimpanzees don't dance. Human beings are united in that they are all musical. Part of our genetic heritage to have these capabilities. That's what snapped together for me that night at the Brandeis Folk And it's reverberated in me ever since. So I'm opportunistic, which means I'm poor. <laughs> I don't have any money. As I go my merry way in the world, I do exactly what Reverend Davis did. I teach as I go. So that since this time of not touring, is that what you've been focusing on? I'm uh, busier than a one-legged man in an asking contest. <laughs> um, I got three CDs ready to go. All right. Then uh, I work also for Earwig Music Company. That was Honey Boy Edwards' record company, mm -hmm. and Michael Frank, who owns it, is my manager. He was Honey Boy's manager as well. Mm -hmm. And we're both kind of dedicated to this sort of preservation. Mm -hmm. Get the old guys work, learn their material, keep it in the air. Right. Doesn't do anybody good if it sits in a record in the library. In a modified way, I like to think I'm following not the same path, but a similar path that Reverend Davis or Jim Brewer. Not trying to change the world, just trying to ease it a little bit. Yeah, I, I certainly resonate with the idea of preserving culture and in, in all of its forms in a way that somehow bridges that long gap that it seems to have had until these kind of these styles and these songs were reincarnated in a lot of ways, uh, kind of after the Harry Smith thing. And I think that's the main mission of this podcast is to make sure that as new songs are kind of toppling the old styles and the old songs that there's a way that there's a pipeline that they can somehow make their way back into the mainstream. Baseline um, data. Yeah. It's not that the music doesn't change with me or with anybody else, but if you do it one at a time, hand to hand, it changes less. Mm. Your podcast, along with hundreds of others, this, this is the one thing I love about the whole folk world is that education is our highest value. Mm -hmm. So as time goes on, we're learning the means of dissemination. Many communities that are potentially one big community, tracking the baseline data, which is what you and I do, Joni did, mm -hmm. that's the job that allows you to measure the cultural difference. We are in a pioneering phase. You remember how when 
computers first came out, there were all kinds of different computers, and now there's only a couple of three kinds, right? Yeah. And when phonographs first came out, there were all these different wrinkles. As these tools become available to our toolkit, their use may render other ways of collecting obsolete. In a lot of ways, yeah, the changing mediums as they've gone through that time from phonograph to what we have now, um, the archives that are available in digital form is insane. Oh, huge. It's, huge. it's massive. It's huge. I never throw anything away, right? Mm -hmm. I have my own archives, folk society newsletters and books and records and cassette tapes. And, but making it all digital makes all of that more flexible. Now we can work together in ways we couldn't do. Is there any kind of message that you want to put out there? And this doesn't have to tie into music, but there's obviously a lot of deep change and you've seen deep change happen before, obviously with, with the civil rights movement. Do you, is there a message that you feel resonates with you or that you want to, that you want to convey to anybody that might be listening? Yeah. All of this other stuff I'm talking about is theoretical and technical and it may or may not come to pass. At bottom, I'm a music teacher. And I'm a music teacher because music thrills me to the core. Music is a minded construction that expresses emotion. If you play music, even for psychologically unhealthy reasons, you'll be psychologically healthier you know, than if you don't. I'm optimistic. I'm optimistic. What I'm talking about here with all of the different uh, manifestations, digital manifestations of folk music now coming to the fore all at once. All as a result of COVID. All as a result of being bunched up together and slamming into this wall. We've had to adapt. We have a chance to do something unprecedented. We can be at once totally independent of one another and at the same time in league with one another. We share values. We all arrange our lives to be able to do this. I, I have uh, nothing but good things to say about that. And thank you so much for sharing your stories and your your life and your your inspirations and the amount of work that you're doing to keep these things alive and to convey this mission to other people and to keep these things alive is something obviously that if it wasn't already instilled in Joan that she she passed on to me and has become a, a huge part of not only my musical life but who I am as a person and um, has allowed a lot of the ego that is to be stripped away which is the continuous thing that'll keep evolving as I go um, and it's it's hard to put it into words how important that is for me um, and my family going forward too. So I really appreciate that you took the time today to, to have this chat with me. And um, I look forward to us crossing paths in person when everything kind of settles and you teaching me some things or two. Well, thank you for having me on. It's uh, a real pleasure and I'm real proud of you. I'm real proud of Joan for picking you. I feel, I feel lucky in that respect to my, myself. All right, Andy. Well, you have a great rest of your day, and uh, thank you again. You too, Nicholas. All right, by the way. With 99 cent tools, apple picker, agitator, truck driver, alligator, living down.
daddy long legs with a pipe and ten cent blue. Good morning, silver sun up, took all night for you to come up. Rolling down to Dixie on a sweet roll and a song. Hitchhiking, half crazy, blind, stupid, bum, lazy. Waiting for a long while to bid St. Louis along. Underpaid and nothing much to lose. Telephone poles and empty fields, cold days and hot wheels. Flying birds and flowing words and the five and ten cent blues. Pack fitter, bullshitter, babysitter, early quitter. Can't find her, don't mind her, dropping in for tea. Old facto, exacto, back to back and black to go. Quarters worth of flowers and a nickel's worth of me. Turn mechanic, hand me down the flyers and the five and ten cent blue.